welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, uh, thank you for letting me be a part of things. My name is Reed. Uh, it was about two and a half years ago I got invited to come here, and I'm like the bad uncle that won't go away. Uh, so it's good. Where'd Abby go? Did you cry during your announcements? No. You didn't cry. I, I want to tell you, church, Abby cried three times during the announcements at the early service, and we took a lottery. To, we're going to have $10,000 if she cried again, but she didn't cry, so nobody gets the money. I, but it was good. Good to see your heart. But um, at any rate, it's great to be here. Good afternoon. Or good morning. It's going to be afternoon in a while. But uh, I want you to think about a word that's simple. It's the word trust. Without trust, life would be impossible. Yeah, put that on, baby. If you came here this morning in a car, you, you had all kinds of trust in, in just getting here. You trusted that no one rigged your car and it blew up like one of those spy movies, you know. And you trusted that there was no sinkhole and on the street as you came. And you trusted that no one undid the lug nuts on your wheels and they all would come off. Trust. Uh, if you're a rock climber, you trust your abilities. You can climb the rock and you also have a little tiny rope that's probably, you know, three-quarter inch in diameter and you trust that rope if your abilities fail. You, you trust that, that whoever was making that rope didn't take the day off and, you know, kind of take some shortcuts. That rope is going to save your life. You put trust in that. You, you cannot live life without trust. You cannot get married without trust. I got married 40 years ago last month, personal best for me and for my wife. Uh, we got married in Rochester, New York, and, and I was in this formal ceremony in a stone chapel. It was really picturesque. And the guy says to me, uh, will you pledge your troth to this woman. I just looked at her. I said, yeah, I don't even know what troth means, but I'll, I'll pledge it. If she'll marry me, I'll pledge it. And so I did. And she trusted that I would deliver. And 40 years later, we're still doing pretty well. Okay. <clears throat> Here's a question for us. Where will we, the people of God, place our trust, our hope, in the year 2021, August of 2021. In what or in whom will we place our trust? Now, let me tell you what's going on with me, which you don't really care, but I'm here today. Studies show that I'm actually here today, and, and I'm going to teach on the last Sunday of August, and then I'm going to teach on the last Sunday of October. Well, in December of last year, I was having my devotions. I read through the Bible every year, and I come across this guy named Hezekiah. Have you ever heard of Hezekiah? Turn to the book of Hezekiah. There is no book of Hezekiah, but he was one of the kings of Israel. So now let me tell you, do turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings 18. So I'm having my devotions in the book of 2 Kings, and I read about Hezekiah, and I just start to slow down my reading, and I start to ponder, and I realize, golly, in, in 2 Kings, you have three chapters on one king, Hezekiah. And if you turn to 2 Chronicles, you have three more chapters on Hezekiah. 
And if you turn to the book of Isaiah, get it, you have how many chapters? Three. Yeah, very good. How did you know? We have three more chapters on Hezekiah, and it just crossed my mind. I thought, God must really want us to pay attention to King Hezekiah. So I've been kind of in investigating from time to time uh, during this year Hezekiah, and I'm going to teach on him uh, this week and the end of the month and the, the end of October. So it's kind of a, a, a stilted series in a sense. Now let me give you a little history. This is... Uh, what, what year of school are you all in? You're, all, you're not all in the same year, so we'll just forget that. Um, Israel becomes a nation, and Israel has three kings. You can use this in the GRE and get into college or something like that. No, that's graduate school, SAT, if they still have it. Uh, the three kings of Israel, of the United Kingdom, are Saul. The next one is David, and the next one is Solomon. Good. After Solomon, his son makes the fateful mistake of raising taxes, and the country divides. I mean, taxes are never controversial, are they? But he raises taxes, and you have a civil war, and you, uh, from that point on, you have the northern kingdom in the north. Northern kingdoms usually are in the north, and that's called Israel, and you have the southern kingdom in the south, and it's called Judah. The northern kings, uh, there are, I think, 19 or 20 of them. Every one of them is evil, and God sends the Assyrians to destroy them. And all of that happens in 2 Kings chapter 17. But now Judah, little tiny Judah, the small kingdom, Judah is left in the south, and Hezekiah is king. All right? With that in mind, uh, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Here's the passage. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So all it's just doing is saying, hey, this guy starts his reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, in case you want to know, was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And, verse 3, Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. And that's a story that comes from Numbers 21. Verse 5, hear it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Well, why? Verse 6. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. And church, that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, here comes King Hezekiah. And as we meet him in this chapter, the writer wants us to see at least uh, several marks of his faith, of his trust. And we're just going to go through them real quickly. Look at verse 3. He's like David. David is the greatest king of, of all Israel, and this king is like 
David. Verse 4, this king, King Hezekiah, has a total purge of what are, are called the high places. Now, the high places where people would go up and worship the Baal gods and the Asherah gods, the gods of the ancient Near Eastern peoples around there, they were instructed to worship Yahweh alone, the God of Israel, but instead they would put on these mountaintops little shrines, and they would go up and worship there, and that was detestable in the eyes of Yahweh, in the eyes of God. And some of the good kings come and they clean up things, but they don't take down the high places. Not this king. Hezekiah comes and he, and he destroys all the high places. Third, Hezekiah has total trust. Look at verse 5, verse 6. It gets better and better. Not just outward obedience, but inward devotion. Verse 5, he trusted the Lord. Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. He clung to the Lord. That's the same word that's used in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, will cling or cleave to his wife. This king cleaves, clings to God himself. He's a faithful man. And then in verse 7, I want you to see a little phrase there. It says, the Lord was with him. We read right over that, but you know, of all the kings of Israel, that's only said of David and of Hezekiah. The Lord was with him. This king also has political courage. Verse uh, 7, the second half of it, he's politically courageous to the extent that he rebels against the king of Assyria. Assyria is the, the most powerful nation on earth, at least from Hezekiah's perspective. And he rebels against that power. Hezekiah's father's name was Ahaz. He was a bad guy. You can read about him in the previous chapter. Ahaz was said to be a servant of the Assyrians. But Hezekiah rebels against the Assyrians. And furthermore, his courage takes him in verse 8 to defeat the Philistines. The Philistines were a vassal state of Assyria, so to attack the Philistines was to attack Assyria. Very, very courageous. So all of Hezekiah's deeds, his accomplishments, his heart's affection, all of those things stand in stark contrast to the kings of Israel in the north and to the wicked kings of Judah in the south. So after 150 years, 150 years from the time of Solomon until the time of Hezekiah, 150 years of, at best, so-so kings, along comes this one, Hezekiah. Judah, the southern kingdom, gets another David. And that's really good news. Okay, test question for us. What would you think Hezekiah's reward would be for his faithfulness. I mean, here's the guy who's eminently faithful. What do you think he got from that? Well, if I was answering the question, I would maybe write an essay, say, well, if he's faithful, he's going to get a good life. Uh, he's he's going to get political prosperity, earthly prosperity, wealth, and territorial expansion and long life and good marriage and all those things. I mean, because faithfulness means a good life, right? No. Look at verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, halfway through his term, Sennacherib, 
king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah. What's it say there? And he took them. Now, we're not going to look at it, but at this point in the passage, it's very clear that the Assyrians came to the northern cities of Israel and took them. And now it's happening in the south. The Assyrians came and utterly destroyed the northern kingdom, and it's happening in the south. Sennacherib, that's the bad guy. Just say it. It'll feel good. Say Sennacherib. Yeah, it sounds bad, doesn't it? Sennacherib. Sennacherib marches right down through Samaria, through the northern kingdom, starts taking the cities of Judah, and he's taken Lachish. And you say, well, I've never even heard of that. Well, let me tell you, it's the second most powerful city in all of Judah. It is the staging ground for the Egyptians when they're going to go north. And now the Assyrians hold everything but Jerusalem. It's a dire situation. Sennacherib takes Lachish. He sends a delegation to Jerusalem, to, to King Hezekiah, to sue for peace. Now, this shouldn't be happening. It really shouldn't. Hezekiah has been so good. And we all know that good things happen to good people, right? Faithfulness means fruitfulness. If we're penitent over our sins, well, then we'll become prosperous. But we learn something in verse 13. Hear it. You've got to know this. You've got it. I need to know this. Faithfulness is not necessarily a shield against disaster. Faithfulness is not necessarily a shield against disaster. Some of the most faithful people I know have cancer or have children who are rebelling in such a way that they're going to shame the whole family, or they've lost jobs due to COVID. Faith is not necessarily a shield against disaster. A man prays for his wife daily, and she still dies when she's 37 of cancer. A son prays for his parents' troubled marriage, and they still get a divorce. A woman diligently serves the Lord in the PTA, in the classroom, in her church, only to find that her husband has left her. A Christian couple moves to Florida to retire, and they happen to buy a condo in Surfside, Florida, and it's all gone. Second Kings chapter 18 tells us that troubles for the faithful are to be expected. Here's the most faithful king in the history of Judah, and he's, he's just... splattered with trouble. Hezekiah is faithful and his kingdom is falling apart. Now, what happens is Sennacherib wants to have a summit meeting, so he sends three uh, delegates from Lachish, and Hezekiah sends three of his own delegates, so neither king is there, but they meet on the wall of Jerusalem, and, and the spokesperson for uh, Sennacherib is called uh, the Rabshakeh. So his title usually comes up in our English translations. Hezekiah sends three people, and they have a little, uh, a little summit meeting, and they get together, and the Rabshakeh says, if you look at verse 19 with me, the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, 
Thus says the great king, king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? You get what's going on? Here's Sennacherib, the king of the most powerful country in the world. He sends a delegation. He says, hey, on whom do you rest your trust? Do you think that, that you can have such a faith that, that you're going to stop me, Sennacherib? That word trust comes up seven times in these verses. That's the key issue in the chapter. And the word trust is fundamental to you, to me, whatever, wherever place in life we are. In whom do we place our trust? In whom do we now trust? Now, church, we've just come through an election year. I don't know if you're aware of that. We had an election last fall. And uh, we have a country that's divided by bitter acrimony and, and a church, by and large, across the, the, the fruited plain that is divided. Uh, we watched in horror on January 6th when uh, the capital was stormed and occupied. Uh, some are frustrated with the courts. Some are very concerned about border security. Some of us wonder about the cognitive capabilities of our president. Uh, we're, we're deeply concerned about the drought that's in the West and, and the water in the Colorado River. It's just not enough to produce the electricity that all kinds of Southern Californians need. What's going to happen? Nobody knows. There's no real easy solution to that. Our inner cities are marked by an increase of violence and murder. Internationally, we're concerned about a few things, aren't we? About China's expansionistic policies, about the Taliban taking Afghanistan, about Vladimir Putin, Putin as a strong man, about the security of Israel, about Iran's nuclear uh, ambitions, about the Delta virus that threatens to put us all back to square one. And the passage asks us, on what do you rest your trust? In whom? do you trust? Now, the dialogue that goes on from here between the Rabshakeh and Hezekiah's delegation, it's, it's a priceless piece of psychological warfare. The Assyrian army is the strongest army in the world. They've just been cut off from Egypt when the Assyrians have taken over Lachish. And the Rabshakeh puts up five threats to Hezekiah to cause him and the people of Jerusalem to tremble and to, to fall into submission to the Assyrians. Psychological warfare. These are tweets. He's, he's, he's working his Twitter feed here. He's, he's posting this on Facebook so that everybody in Jerusalem will know exactly what's going on. And as you hear these, think about your own life where, where you're tempted to cave in. But let's look at them. Verse 21. Do you want to rely on Egypt, the Rabshakeh says? Well, that's like putting your weight on a splintered staff that will not hold you. Verse 22, do you want to rely on God? Now, this is kind of hard to grasp, but Hezekiah is praised for taking down the high places, right? But from the perspective of the people of Judah, he's just closed all the churches. I mean, that's where they went to worship. And, and their king has said, you can't do it anymore. So Sennacherib works that angle psychologically. You want to rely on your God? But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? And third, you want to rely on your military? 
Well, if I gave you 2,000 horses, you couldn't put riders on them. You don't even have 2,000 riders for the horses I could give you. Do you want to rely on prophecy? Sennacherib says, God sent me here to do this. And in a sense, he was right. Isaiah prophesied that Sennacherib would come and destroy Judah. The Rabshakeh is working the crowd. He's sowing seeds of doubt and pessimism. And at this point, Hezekiah's delegation says, hey, could we talk in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, because we don't want everyone to understand. And the Rabshakeh just begins to speak more loudly in Hebrew. And he says, these people and you are doomed. It's in the Bible. Look at verse 27. You are doomed to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. That's where you're going. Number five, you want to rely on King Hezekiah? Don't trust him. He cannot deliver you. Now, the passage sounds like it's a war between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. It is not. Really, the contest is between Sennacherib and the God of Hezekiah. On what do you rest your trust? In whom do you now trust? Okay, what do we do with the story? In a sense, end of Bible study, right? What do we do with this story? The big picture we just got, tiny little Judah, big Assyria. The Assyrians are going to come. They're going to destroy. That's the, that's the, the, the small context. But, but what do we do with it? We're reading this in 2021. What do we do with the story? Think about this with me. Little Judah, they're down there in Israel, and look, they look north, and they see big, fat Assyria, strong, mighty, mean Brutal people. When they look south, they see Egypt. Egypt were the technologists. They invented the chariot and perfected the chariot. And they, had, uh, all kind, and they made some really cool pyramids, I've heard. Really nice. They, they, they're square and everything's nice. And very powerful nation. And the history of Israel and Judah is to be buffeted between these powers from the north and powers from the south. And, and the temptation was to make an alliance either with the Egyptians or make an alliance with the Assyrians. What Sennacherib is after is he wants Hezekiah to worship the Assyrian gods, and then he will give Judah protection. You see, it's a, it's a little bit of a deal. You, give me, you, you uh, pledge your loyalty, and I will pledge your protection. It's a compromise. So, how about us? You with me? If we look north, here we're going to have a little bit of fun with the text. If we look north in 2021, what do we see? We see Washington, D.C. And that's the political temptation we have. We think, golly, if we could just get the right governors. Or maybe you've got, maybe you got your dream. You think, boy, Joe Biden is the guy. Or maybe you think, gosh, we just need the second coming of Donald Trump. Or maybe you think, we need Ronald Reagan to come back from the dead, and he'll take care of us. But if we could just get the right senators, or we can get the right, the, the right representatives and the right people in the Supreme Court and the other courts, the federal courts, and if we could get the right president, then you know what? Then everything would be fine. Can I tell you something? 
That's idolatry. All you have to do is worship the king. Bow to Ishtar, Asher, Marduk. All you have to do is place your hope in Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or fill in the, the blank. I like what Michael Horton says. Listen to this. He says, the good news, the gospel is not moral improvement or a Christian society or any political system, whether democratic or totalitarian, capitalist or socialist. The good news, the gospel, is the announcement that in his incarnation, obedient life, sacrificial death, and resurrection, Jesus accomplished redemption from sin, death, and hell, and reconciled sinners to God. Now, can we have a little Presbyterian amen on that? Good, good, good. Feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> the danger of putting our hope in Washington, D.C., that's called the cult of nationalism. There's the word, and I'll, I'll define it. Nationalism, from a Christian perspective, is putting our confidence in a nation and not in God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Now, there is a huge difference between what I've just called Christian nationalism and an appropriate Christian patriotism, where we love our country, but we love far God far more. And we say, well, I'm a citizen here, and I, I, I will vote, and I uh, might even contribute to a political party, or, or I might even run for office, or I might even become a career politician, but I always have in my mind and on my heart another king another country, another city, and my true longings and my true needs will be fulfilled in that king, not in any political process. I, I like what C.S. Lewis said a long, long time ago. He said, a Christian might die for his country, but he can never live for his country. But what if we look south? What do we see? We don't see Egypt. What do we see? Some of you have masks on, and um, that's good. By the way, I've been vaccinated. We can hug if you want to. But um, when we look south, we see Egypt. We see the technologists. We see the ones who built the chariots. We see Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson and Novax. And we think, golly, if we could just get the right vaccine. If, if we could just get those other people to be vaccinated. If, if we could just do this or that. Science will save me. We are reading 2 Kings in the midst of a pandemic. We are concerned that the Delta virus is going to come back with a vengeance, but there's a lot already to mourn. In the United States, about 605,000 have died officially of COVID, about 4 million worldwide. It's been a dreadful time. Schools have been closed. Depression, alcoholism, suicide, all kinds of tentacles have come out from this virus that are ugly. But in the midst of our lamentations, we can't put our, our faith ultimately in Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, or Novak. Those things are not God. Do we really think that the Egyptians or our scientists will save us from the things we really need to be saved from? And do we really think that if we got the right vaccine, we won't die? Have you heard the cry, on what do you rest your trust? In whom do you now trust? The, all that we've looked at, I want it to come down into one little funnel. I'm just about done, and it is this. 
The point of this passage is that you and I, we need Hezekiah-like faith if we're going to get through. If we're going to make it in this thing called the Christian life, we need Hezekiah-like faith, which is faith in God, not faith in anything else. That is where our hope is. And you say, well, well, why? Why should I have that kind of faith? Because the God of Hezekiah delivers. And Hezekiah gets involved. We're going to see this at the end of October or maybe next time. I don't know. But Hezekiah experiences this massive miracle from God. And Yahweh himself saves the tiny kingdom of Judah. And friends, we, you and I, we are involved in a much larger miracle right now. The miracle is that God, we just said it, Apostles' Creed, God promises that he's going to raise us from the dead. And we're going to live forever and dwell forever, forever with him. That is why he's worthy of our trust. So Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. If you're hungry, I'm the bread of life. And by the way, if you're afraid of dying, I am the resurrection and life. If you come to me, you will live. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And God, uh, we can say together as, as a church and as individuals that we have not trusted you as we should have. Maybe there are people in this room right now who have never trusted you to be their Savior and their Lord. And if I could address you for a moment, you can come to Christ right now. He is waiting with open arms. And you can confess with the rest of us our sin. And church, let's, let's go to God. Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let's think about our own inadequacy, our own lack of faith, our own lack of trust. And let's come and confess that to God as we prepare for the Lord's table. Well, church, give me your eyes. Look up. I want you to hear the good news. Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, he died for us. He was raised from the dead. He reigns in power right now at the right hand of God the Father. He prays for us according to Hebrews 7. And the Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, his or her sins are forgiven. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, I want to tell you, wonderfully, marvelously, your sins are forgiven in Him. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website, at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.